Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. We ask that you bless this time as we look at your word, that you will guide and lead as we look at this psalm and see what you have to say to us. And we just thank you for each person that might be on their way yet. In your son's precious name, amen. Psalm 102. We're actually on verse 9, but we're going to read the whole psalm just to get our context again. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto you. Hide not your face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline your ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned as a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I am like a pelican in the wilderness. I am like an owl in the desert. I watch in him as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. My enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes of bread like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and, and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declines, and I am withered like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever in your remembrance unto all generations. You shall arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her, yea, and set the time to come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor in the dust thereof. So shall the heathen, so the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth their glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written in the generations to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord, for he has looked down from the heights of his sanctuary, for from heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoners, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord, he weakened my strength in the way he shortened my days. I said, my God, oh, my God, take not away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generation. Of old have you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They shall pray, perish, but you shall endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment as the vesture shall you exchange them and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall have no end, and the children of your servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before you. Verse 9. For I have eaten ashes like bread, and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me down. So this psalm is one of those ones where he's kind of in a bad mood, he's depressed, he's being, in this case, he's being judged. And it says he's eaten ashes. I mean, and it literally means worthlessness. He's eaten the idea of worthlessness and he's mingled his drink with weeping. Many people I know get into this place where they feel worthless and, and empty and, and judged. And that is okay for a short period of time to feel that judgment of God and to get these feelings. But if you live in those feelings, you've got a problem because those feelings are designed to bring us to confession and repentance and renewal of our spirit. And this is something David has all these problems. He goes up and down, up and down. He, he, he has very high highs. <laughs> And very low lows, and it seems like he's very, when you read the Psalms, it's almost uh, mercurial. He'll be way up and way down and way up. Uh, he's probably not the kind of guy that you wanted to hang around with a lot if you wanted to stay up. Because when he went down, he would go to as far down as you can go. And then he'd skyrocket back the other direction which is good because he went back up because I've met lots of people who stay on the low side and just they're worthless, they're miserable, they're terrible, and they never get past where David always seems to get to, starting really low and coming back and saying, God, I know you're in charge. And so we want to, be, we want to look at this, and here he is. He's almost at a low. Why? Because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me down. So David actually felt like, because remember, he's a warrior. He's used to this idea of a warrior kind of bringing the person up and then casting them down. He's seen this over and over. 
in, in battle. They lift the person up, you know, get them, get them, get, uh, get them up, and then they cast them down in a, in a victory. And so he's actually, and we think about this, when I see so much warrior descriptions in here when David talks. Because he's, God, you've, you've lifted me up and you've cast me down. And many of us have probably been there where we feel this. And this is true of many, many of the great evangelists of, the, of our day. D.L. Moody is said to be, after he would do a great uh, campaign on there, that he would end up being so depressed that, uh, that there wasn't enough people that came forward, and he would directly blame himself and go into depression for weeks after hundreds of people, thousands of people had gotten saved, he'd be in depression for weeks because not enough, not enough came. And this is something we want to be careful of. Number one, everything we do is God's work, not ours. And if we want to be very careful that we don't start blaming ourselves for, for not doing enough, because it's all God's work. And David is saying, God, you lifted me up. You threw me down, and, and, and you've judged me. And it says in verse 11, My days are like a shadow that declines, and I am like grass. I have a feeling that this one is one of David's psalms in his older, life, older days because the older we get, the more we realize that our days are short. And we start realizing that our life is short. No matter how long we live, our life is short. And when you're younger, you know, how many young people think that, they're old, you know, that anybody over 28 is, you know, you know, if you're over 24 or 25, you're old, and you get closer to 20 and it's 30, you know, it keeps moving. It's always about... 15 years older than whatever you are is old. But there comes that point where we realize time is short and we don't have a lot more time. And that is when we start really begrudging all the stuff we have not done for God. Because we start realizing we're out of time. We're out of time to get there to do the great things. I wanted to be a missionary and now I'm, now I'm 93. I'll never be a missionary. Uh, you know, whatever it might be, uh, you know, I was called to do this and I never got around to becoming what I thought I was supposed to do. And we need to be very careful because that's the time we start looking back at our life and regretting a lot of the decisions. And this is something I keep telling us all the time. God wants us living in the moment that we are in. If we're dwelling on the past mistakes, we can't change them. There's nothing we can do to change our past. But I know many people who live in their past and, the, and, the, and what they think are mistakes and, and all the things that they think they did wrong. But God works everything for good. Everything that we do, he knows and he knew that we would do. Now, this is the important thing is that God knew what you were going to do and has already made a plan to accomplish whatever you were supposed to do and didn't do. And he might have used you to fulfill places that other people didn't, didn't do. But we cannot live in the past and say, well, you know, I'm going to be depressed because I didn't live that right. By the same token, we can't live in the future because, number one, we don't know that we have it. But even beyond that, we don't know what circumstances are going to change in the, in the, in the future. My hope and goal is to be a pastor here until God comes back or I die. I don't want, I'm not really looking to go anywhere else. I'm not wanting to do anything else because I know I'm where God wants me to be. And so I'm going to live right in the moment that we are, teach in the moment that we are, make the ministry of the moment we are. That doesn't mean we don't make any plans for the future. That would be foolish. But we don't spend all our time dwelling on what I'm going to do. Because if I'm dwelling in the past or I'm dwelling in the future, I miss today. And this is something we have to be very careful. Do not lose today because of being so worried about the past or the future that we, that we totally lose today. And we want to be careful of that. I met people and I know people and I know we all know people that are on both sides of the coin. They're stuck in the past and can't get over it or they're so... Someday I'm going to do this. Someday I'm going to do that. Someday. And they're always, it's always someday. And in the process, they miss everything going on today. And this is, we need our strength. Because as we get older, number one, some days we're not going to be able to do things. 
So when we're able to, we take advantage of what God gives us and we do it. And we look at this and say, David's saying, my days are like a shadow that declines. In this case, he's talking about the sundial, how the sundial moves toward the end, or the shadows, just general shadows. And he says, my days are like grass. And it withers, it comes, and it goes. They're talking in a desert situation, just like we're used to here in, in Kingman, uh, Kingman and Colorado in Arizona. Our grass pops up with a little bit of moisture, and sometimes by the end of the day, it's totally gone. And this is what he's saying. It's like grass. It's that fast. It comes up, and it disappears. In verse 20, he says, But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and your remembrances unto all generations. He's putting his faith in God, who has a plan. And you, this is so wonderful. God has a plan, and his plan does not stop just because we die. Does not start because we were born. His plan started back with Adam and Eve, and it's continuing when it, if God doesn't come before, if doesn't rapture us before we die, his plan will continue past when we die because his plan is multi-generational. It's from the beginning to the end. He has a plan and it is going to be remembered. His story continues. He changes the characters, he changes the pieces, but the story and his plan continues. This is something that's very important for us to understand, especially if we think we're really special. God goes, you're not all that special. You may, be, you may have a part to play now, and you might even have an important part to play now, but when you die, there'll be somebody else that plays your important role and go forward. You may think you're totally insignificant, and this is even probably something to be more concerned. If you think you're insignificant, wait till you get to heaven and see how significant your part really was in God's plan. Because you think about this, what can start an avalanche on a, on a hill, whether it be rocket, a rock slide avalanche or a snow? It takes just a small motion in those, in those rocks, and the whole side of a mountain can come down. You may be just that piece that has that, just that little tiny move that makes the avalanche come. And in this case, a good one for God. It's been said that the person who led uh, D.L. Moody to the Lord had never led anybody else to the Lord. But boy, what a change he, that one person was. And I'm sure that that poor person always thought, you know, well, I'm a nobody. I'm not, you know, I'm just sitting here serving God, doing my little thing. Nobody, nobody is going to, nothing I've done has mattered. If he hadn't gone out and made that one witness that brought, some, brought him to the Lord, thousands. And many thousands because people have taken his sermons and, and moved them on and used him as an example to go forward, wouldn't have been touched. We will not know until heaven the little things we do that have made great impact in the kingdom. Because you might be the one who led somebody else to the Lord, who then led somebody else to the Lord, who led a mighty person to the Lord. You don't know where your value is. So never diminish what God has used you for. So never diminish what you're doing because if you're honoring God and you're serving God, you don't know the parts that you're playing. This is when, why one of my favorite songs is Thank You. And it's a, you know, the one where he went to heaven and, he, he said, and all the people thanked this guy for the little things that he did. Things that you would never have even thought that you had done. Not, things you had not ever believed. And some of this may be just your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to serve God in spite of things not seeming to be right. Your neighbors who watched you go to church Sunday after Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever it is you went to church and they watched you. And it made an impact on them that sometime down the road, without you ever knowing about it, <laughs> they got saved because you had an influence of faithfulness that brought, came out. That you showed love, you showed kindness, and they knew that you were a Christian and they started wondering, well, what, what, what is their agenda? What are they trying to get? And then they finally realized it's just because 
you're a Christian loving them. Because the world always looks at any act of kindness, they look at, what do you want? Because that's the way they are. That's the way the world acts. It's very rare in the world to find somebody without some ulterior motive to their giving. Whether it's to get a name or recognition or get their name on the plaque on the, on the wall or just that people are going to think that they're wonderful. Very few people in the world, and I'm not saying nobody, but very few people in the world just give for no reason. And yet God calls us to love one another and give out. Go the extra mile. Love those that hate you. Be nice. Be kind to them even. Uh, and that's hard stuff to do without God. And so here we are. He's saying, God, you, are, you shall endure forever and your remembrances to all generations. This is one of those great things when you read biographies of Christians. You read the word of God and you see how God touched people's lives. And this is wonderful when we see this. And I really encourage people, read some of the biographies of missionaries, read some of the biographies of some of the great Christians and see what God has done, has done in the Bible, has done in the near future, and is still doing today. It helps to build faith. And he's passing around the, the Hiding Place, which is a more recent book. You know, one of the, well, kind of, it's an old book now, but, <laughs> but it's still a book that shows how God is doing things in our day. In our day. And you know, the next great thing is when we share what God is doing in our life to other people, and people go, oh, God is still doing things. He didn't stop. And, and I recently, and I really hammer on this is because there's a whole group of people in the church that believe that God stopped doing things back in the Apostles' day. Now, I don't know where their God is or how they figured that because my Bible tells me that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It does not tell me he stopped doing miracles in the Old Testament or the New Testament or five years ago. He has not stopped doing miracles. He has not stopped moving in people's lives. He has not stopped having a plan for this world. He has a plan. We know that. Revelation tells us he has a plan all the way to the end in a brand new heaven and earth. And I'm sure that he has a plan for that time already because he's outside of time and understands that one already. He already knows the future of that new heaven and new earth. He is not limited he already knows the plan for that one. He already knows the beginning and end of that one, which has no end. And yet he knows all of it. Our God has a plan. He has not changed, and he never will change. Because he is a very fancy word, immutable. He does not change, ever. He had a plan all the way from the beginning. He has power. He has shown miracles. He is still having miracles and has a plan, and he will have miracles and plans in the future. This is why we can stand firm with our God, because of who he is. He does not change. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. And really, to blow your mind, he's already in the new Jerusalem and new heaven and earth that we don't even have because he, because he is outside of time and omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same moment. Verse 13, you shall arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is to come. It says, God, you're going to arise. And what does this mean? This word is the idea of rising up for battle, rising up to be the conqueror. And you will have mercy. He will have mercy. He will not give what they deserve. And Zion, of course, is Jerusalem. Okay, it's a poetic word for Jerusalem in the Old Testament. When they talk about Zion, it's Jerusalem. Loosely now in our days, Israel, but specifically Jerusalem. But it is all the nation of Israel at the same time. But it says, you will have mercy on Zion. Mercy on, on Jerusalem. Mercy on the Israelites. And this is something that God has done for all of the time. Why did he pick the Jews to be his people? Because he wanted to. It's, it's really that simple. There was nothing really 
phenomenally special about Abraham other than he sought after God and but God gave him the desire to seek after him because you look at him he he was a liar most of the time he he uh, did a lot of dumb things in his lifetime but yet he sought God and he would he was a humble man he was a righteous man he really wanted to serve God to the best of his ability even though he was a weak person but you know, the great thing about that is because Abraham was chosen by God as weak and weak and frail as he was, we can look at ourselves and say, God can use us if we will just seek after him in, in the same way. The, the key to Abraham's life was that he sought God. He was always, one of the great things when you read Abraham's life is, and he built an altar. Okay, Several times in our stories, he built an altar. What was the purpose of the altar? To come before the face of God. And God, I need you, I need you, I need you. That was his lifestyle, was to go before God. And God blessed him. And we look at this, you know, God told him to leave the Ur of the Chaldees. And we've talked about this. So he, he went up the Euphrates to Haran and stopped. <laughs> okay. And if you remember, he stopped for a couple decades before he finally was obedient and went to the promised land. God still used him. God will still use us even if we stop and forget about him for a period of time. Now that does not mean that it is good for us to stop. It does not mean that it was God's plan for us to stop. But God still will use us when we finally come to our senses and come back to him and, give, and humble ourselves. Because usually when we've stopped... We've stopped because we've elevated ourselves above God and we're going to be disobedient. And God will have to spank us a little bit and try to move us a little bit. But eventually, when we come forward and move with him, he goes, okay, about time, let's go. <laughs> you, you finally came to the plan. You finally give, you finally given in. And we grow. And you know what? God can use us no matter what. He redeems the lost time for us. And when we're just patient, we'll watch what he does. The sad thing for us is the damage that we've done sometimes in that, in that time of stop. The damage we've done to ourselves, or worse, our families. And God will redeem those times for us. Because every one of us that have anybody that, that we're responsible for, when we are disobedient, they will suffer. And that goes for the government of a country. If they're disobedient, the country suffers. For a church, the pastor gets disobedient and leads the wrong direction, then the church suffers. For families, if the father is disobedient, this family suffers. It also goes down to the mother when, for this, but when we are disobedient, others will suffer. And this is what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Many times when we're getting ready to be disobedient, we count, the, we count what we think the costs are and we say, well, I think I'll, I'm willing to pay that consequence. And we all do that. We all do that. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin. We go, okay, here's what I think is the consequences. And, you know, if I do this, if I tell this lie, I'm hurting myself, maybe this person, if they find out. But we don't always, the problem is we don't know the full cost that God gives us. We think we're willing to pay the price of that, of that sin. And God says, you didn't even calculate all the cost. We think about some of these evangelists that have gotten into affairs and adultery, thinking, they, thinking they're willing to pay the price. And it's destroyed their ministry when, they finally, when it finally breaks out. That was a high price that they really didn't contemplate because other people saw them, other people served them. Sometimes it's because people raised them too high and, and put them up on a pedestal that they shouldn't have been on in the first place. But there's also an accountability. When, you're, when you are a leader, there's an accountability that you have to whoever is under you, whatever that, that position is. And God says, there's consequences you've never dreamed of, which is why we need to be so in tune with God and walking with God that hopefully we can stay as, as pure as we can, but that is by walking with him. Because the consequences are always higher than we think they're going to be. And this is the sowing and the reaping. You sow seed, 
and you will reap more than you sow. Whether it's good or bad, you reap more than you sow. And anybody who's ever planted anything knows that this is true. When you plant that seed of corn, you do not expect to get one kernel of corn back out of the, out of the plant. You, you sow that pea into the ground, you do not expect to get one pea back from the plant. You, you at least hope to get one pea pod out of the plant. You know, but you ex also expect more than one pea pod. You know. But when we do this, even in our life, it's the same principle. If we sow good seed, God gives us a reward that is multiple times what is sown. But when we sow evil, we get back multiple times what, what is sown. And that oftentimes hurts more than just ourselves. But he says, God, you will rise up. You will give mercy to Zion. He gives us mercy. And I am thankful for his mercy. He does not give us what we deserve. I can't tell you how many times I've shared with people and they go, well, I just want what I deserve. And I'm going, you do not want what you deserve. You definitely don't want what you deserve. Because if you got what you deserved, you'd be dead at the moment, right at the moment that you committed your first sin, and which deserves death. Have you ever thought about that? God said, Adam and Eve, the moment, the day you eat of this fruit, you are going to die. They died spiritually that moment. Now, it took them another 900 and some years before they finally died physically. But they did die. But you know, it was God's mercy that they didn't die immediately. It's his mercy that when we sin, we don't get struck dead immediately. It's his mercy that he gives us an opportunity to repent and come to Jesus. It's his mercy that he sends us good things in spite of all the bad that we do. And then he gives us grace. And when we come to him, he gives us grace and gives us everything we don't deserve. Being part of his family. Having heaven. Having joy in our heart. I love the peace that passes all understanding that he gives us. That is wonderful when he gives us peace that we can, no matter what's going on in our life, there's an internal peace that he gives us that says he's in control. God, I don't know why all these things are going wrong. God, I don't know why all my kids are making bad decisions. God, I don't know why I lost my job, but you have given me a peace that you're in, you're in control and that you have a plan. And if we wait long enough with God in there, he'll show us what that plan is. Now, sometimes it's hard. But it's so important that we grab hold of him at his verse and he says that all things work together for good. For those who call according to the purpose of God. And I know when you're in the middle of all the problems, that's a hard verse sometimes to believe. That's why you have to believe it before you're in the middle of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> because once you truly believe that verse it becomes a lifeline and I've shared with you there are times when all I've been holding on to is that one verse saying God I don't understand anything that's going on in my world and my life but you have made a promise and I'm going to hold on to this promise for all it's worth and, and wait to get out of this and it's sometimes that important. That's why we need to be memorizing certain verses that are very important to us. You know, Psalms says, uh, excuse me, Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. You know, sometimes it's all we can do is say, God, I need your leading. I'm going to trust in you, God, because everything I, every time I make a decision that goes wrong, God, Three, three, five, and six. Three, five, and six. But it's important for us to trust in God with all our heart because our thinking is going to get us into trouble. Always. Always. Every time we do things that we think are good without consulting God, it almost is inevitably going to get us in trouble. 
And God took a long time. This is one of those lessons I had to learn the hard way. For many years, it took me to learn this. Probably, you know, give it, give up, God. You know, you're, 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 you've got the plan. But we need to include Him in our plans because it is all many times what He tells us to do is so counterintuitive. It makes no sense. Love, you know, love those that hate you. Do good to those who persecute you. That is not the way the world does things. <laughs> that is not the way the the, the world uh, tries to handle their problems. They go. They don't like me, you just wait. You see how I'm going to take, take care of them. That's the world's way, isn't it? You know, they were mean to me, boy, just wait till they see how I'm going to get back at them. And God says, no, I want you to love them. I want you to do good to them. Matter of fact, when that Roman soldier makes you carry his, ar his armor for the mile that he's allowed to make you carry it, I want you to go too. Yeah. Can you imagine the, the Roman soldiers when that would happen? This guy hits the mile marker, and they're used to people just dumping, not, not even being nice about him, just dumping their stuff. And this guy continues walking. Yeah. Can you imagine the conversation that would have brought up? Yeah. Uh, what are you doing? You passed the mile marker. Oh, yeah, but my, my God said to, to be kind and to go the extra mile. Who's your God? <laughs> Who's your God? What is this God you're talking about? Sometimes when we're kind to people, when it makes no sense at all, it opens doors for conversations that you would never have had opened up before. When you're kind to somebody and they're going, how can you do this? What are you, what, what are you doing? And you get to share God with them. Share how everything is forward, you know, working for him. Verse 14 says, For your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, your glory. Verse 14, your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. This is kind of an interesting statement because it seems to be that almost all Jews have a very high regard for Jerusalem. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they are. It, they have this because Jerusalem is home for them. It really is. And in David's day, they were all waiting to get back there. And, and later on, when they got, went into captivity, most of them were willing, ready to come back. But there's this whole idea. This is God's country in there as far as they're concerned. There is no place where God is more present than Jerusalem. You know, and I've even heard many Christians say the same thing, that go to Jerusalem and visit, that there's just something special, something that feels good. Now, I've not had the pleasure of going there ever, but I've heard many people talk about that there's a feel in there that's different. There's just, there's, a, there's a, but it is someplace. It's God, it's where God said, it's where I have chosen to dwell. And he has dwelt there in the temple for centuries and his very presence seems to be in that place. But you know, he's everywhere, we know that, but there just seems to be places where God is a little more, just a little more. And sometimes when, a, when you're in a church where God is lifted up on a, on a weekly basis and everything, you can just feel the difference in that type of place because that is where God has been in a strong and mighty way. That's what I've heard from many people who've gone just to Israel in general, but specifically Jerusalem, to walk where Jesus walks, to, to see the things that he would have seen is a different... He says, your servants take pleasure in their stones, and I love this, and favor the dust thereof. <laughs> you know, even the dust itself is special to them. Daniel's prayer when he was in captivity was the longing for Jerusalem, and he never returned. Ezekiel's longing is to return to Israel. Once England gave them the promised land and you know, thousands and millions of Jews returned back to Israel because it was home. And for most Jews on Passover, it's, there's a saying that they will make next year in Jerusalem. Even though many of them may never go there, but it's that idea of the special place would be to go to Jerusalem to do this. And the ultimate on the reason for that is they're hoping to have the temple back so that they can make sacrifices that they need to be making for these ceremonies to be complete. And we're going to be seeing very quickly this temple going up, whether it's prefabricated and going up in, a, in, a, in just a short period when they finally get the opportunity to get there, 
or whatever, but they're, still, they're in the process right now of training the priests how to offer the sacrifices, how to, how to skin the animals, how to do everything. They're making, they're making everything they need. As soon as they get permission to build their temple, they are ready to go. It wouldn't have been Solomon's temple, but it would have been God's. Well, it's going to be a temple. I don't know that it'll be God's temple, but it'll be a, it'll be a temple. The mercy seat no longer is, is anywhere that they know. The Ark of the Covenant has is no, is, is been lost. They don't know where it's at. And a matter of fact, you may or may not know this, but the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were not in Solomon's temple. It has been lost since the Babylonian captivity. Even the second temple did not have everything in it that it was supposed to have to be the complete temple. Where it's at, who knows? Nobody knows. Uh, will, it ever be, will it ever be found? I don't know. I doubt it. It was not in the second temple. I do not expect it to be in the third temple because it wasn't in the second temple because those were not the ones that God ordained. And especially I don't see it being in the third temple because Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrifices. So I don't see it being part of the third temple. That's just my personal opinion on it, because Jesus completed the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, so there's really no sense in it being reestablished. But they are going to reestablish it, because Revelation tells us they're going to reestablish it. And it will be more of an abomination, because it is no longer the symbol. It will no longer be a shadow of the real, because the real has come, and you don't need a shadow anymore. There are sacrifices that they can do that would be legitimate sacrifices, and we're not going to go into all of those because we did that back in Leviticus. But the Millennial Kingdom will have sacrifices going on, but they are not the sin sacrifice or the transgression sacrifice. They will be the meal offering and the thanksgiving offerings that were, were given because those were the celebrations with God. So there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And that shocks a lot of people, but it says it's going to be sacrifices. They have to be the sacrifices that are for thanksgiving and for the fulfillment of vows and not the transgression for sin sacrifices. We as Gentiles usually think that there's only one sacrifice. And we've gone and we spent a long time in Leviticus talking about the five different sacri major sacrifices that there are multiple sacrifices out there that the temple was participating in. We want to be able to bring this up and say, yes, there's going to be sacrifices during that period of time. The Thanksgiving one, which I love the one pastor who says it was a picnic with God. <laughs> you gave your sacrifice, God got part of it, the priest got part of it, and part of it was sent back to you and you had to eat it within 24 hours. So you had a big party because you, gave a, you have half a, half a cow that you have to eat in 24 hours. You've invited lots of friends. To celebrate <laughs> because if you didn't eat it all you had to burn it because you had 24 hours to get it done 48 for a different for on one valve but still in 48 hours you're not going to eat half a cow verse, verse 15 says so the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord reverence the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory we're starting to get a picture now of the millennial kingdom when all of the kings recognize Jerusalem. Jesus will rule from Jerusalem for the millennial kingdom. Matter of fact, in the new heaven and earth, he rules from Jerusalem for the rest of eternity. <laughs> from, because the new Jerusalem comes down and he rules from there as, as the king. So, Does this fear mean awe? That's what I thought. Awe. Well, fear, fear always has an element of awe and respect. Or because even if you're fearing somebody hurting you, what are you doing? You're lifting them up because they have power over you. So you're still in awe, in re, you know, kind of a respect, kind of an offhanded respect. But fear always has an element of awe and respect in it. And whether it's negative awe, I'm afraid, you know, these guys can really hurt me. So therefore, I'm lifting them up. This is why, when I've said before, I, from reading the scriptures, truly believe that fear of anything but God is sin. Because it's lifting up and saying, God, you're not in control of what's going on. These, these things, these individuals, the, these circumstances 
are what I'm going to be afraid of. Fear is very close to idolatry when it's not of God. I like when I said, the nations will fear the name of the Lord. I think that's Fear the name of the Lord. And again, name, we've gone over this several times, but I can't help but go over this. Name is everything about the reputation of God. All right? Name is just not the physical name. And I know many people who make a big deal out of you. you got to use the name, the right name for God. Well, okay, fine. I'm English. I'm not, I'm not Span I'm American. I'm not, or English. I speak English. I'm not, I'm not worrying about what they call God in, in Hebrew. I'm not really worried about what they call God in German, even though I know German. I am going to call his name and know that when I use his name, I'm talking about all of the reputation of God, his power, his glory, and his honor. And this is something we need to get into. I've had people get really upset because you didn't do things right. You didn't use the right name. And I remember in the 80s, there was a big movement, the Yahweh only movement. If you weren't praying to Yahweh, you weren't praying to the right God. Okay? And it's like, Okay, I'm not Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew. I can't even read Hebrew. I know how to use the tools to understand Hebrew. So I'm not going to worry about this. But I do know the power of God and his glory and his reputation. And I think back, you know, people in this room are old enough to remember when your family name really meant something to you or it had been tarnished so bad that you didn't want to have your family name, whichever, it might, whichever side it might be. But my dad was always real big on this. He goes, you are a Wells. This means that you are a hard worker and dependable person. That was hammered into my head growing up. That you are a Wells. You will, you have a... When that people hear that name, they're going to expect a good worker and a hard worker. That was the name that he wanted to, the reputation he was pounding into our heads. Now there are certain people who have a name that they want to live, get as far away from as possible. Because their name is associated to the laziest person in the town or the thief or the drunkard or the, and their name is associated with that and they'd rather not have their name known. Okay. Name holds power of reputation when you say something. But even today, even though we don't make a big deal out of it, name still means a lot today because there's certain names that you're going to hear and you're going to associate with different, different things. Our politicians that were running this just recently for president, okay? One, a misogynist, uh, you know, angry individual, and another one who's being called a liar and a cheat, okay? So their names, whether it's true or not, and it, we're not going to get into that, but their names had reputation attached to them. And people had to decide, who am I going to vote for, Be, you know, based on their, who they thought those names were and the reputation behind the name. And it doesn't matter whether it was, and this is very important for us to understand, it doesn't matter whether that reputation is true or not. Reputation is what others think about you. Whether it's true or not becomes irrelevant because we probably have done something or somebody has taken that name and done something that has been taken wrong or right or perceived in a certain way and caused us to have to have that name. Which is why as Christians we have to be careful about the reputation that we put out in front. Can we go out and do whatever we feel like doing out there when we're in Christ? The answer is actually yes we can, but... But we are Christians because of the grace of God and faith. And we're going to go to heaven, but the reputation and the scar we're putting on God's name when we try to do that is terrible. And that is something that we would be judged for before God on reward time. You lived a life that doesn't, didn't lift my name up. You tarnished my name. And I think it's the opposite. You said yes. I say no because you shouldn't ever act how you used to be because now you're a Christian and you need to not do the thing. And that's exactly basically what I've said. I yeah. mean, yeah. Uh, the word liberty in the scriptures, we think, like Paul says, you have liberty. The Greek word for liberty literally means you have the right to do what you should, not what you want. You, you have the right to do what you should, not what you want. 
That is what liberty really means. I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to God. And he says, you get to do what I want you to do, but you can't. You can go out and do what you want and, and do it wrong, but I, this is really what you should be doing. The right to do what you should, not what you want. Now, this is true. I don't know if the other services use liberty as much as the Navy did. The Navy gave liberty to their people, which meant they could leave the ship. <laughs> okay? You, you normally had to stay on the ship, and you got liberty. You were able to go out and do things. Now, as long as you were in that uniform, though, you really weren't at liberty to do anything that would disgrace the uniform. You could get in big trouble if you did something to disgrace the uniform. But I, I was around Navy all the time, so I know that they use liberty. I think the other ones use the word leave more than liberty. But, but in the Navy, you were stuck on a ship. You were, you were given permission to leave the ship when you were given liberty. And, but God is saying, I've got things that I, you need to live in a way that honors me. Now, we have, we're, we have the ability, and God's still going to love us if we do the wrong things, but he's going to hold us accountable for those. And he says, we, I've got a bigger plan for you. I've got a name and reputation I want you to keep. I, you are my ambassadors, as Paul tells us, and an ambassador represents their country. If you go to another country as an ambassador from another country, everything you do or don't do reflects on your country. And the whole idea is you'd better be a, an honorable person because if you go out and do a break every law that you can find to break, you're telling that country that the country you represent is a bunch of lawbreakers. If you go in and you're honoring your country, that's going to have an impression. We are ambassadors of God, meaning that we bring God's country to this world. Everywhere we go, we're bringing God's rules, God's way of thinking, God's way of acting into all that we do if we're truly representing him as an ambassador. This is something that's really critical. I was listening to a show the, a couple weeks ago, and this, they were talking about this guy who had nailed up a uh, a plaque onto his wall saying God's embassy on his home. You think about that. Isn't that true, though? If we are truly ambassadors of God, our homes that we dwell in are truly an embassy for God and should be his presence, his rules, his activities in our home. And his, Because embassy is a territory of that country inside another, in an, inside another world. When you build, if you go to Washington, D.C. and go down Embassy Row and you were to visit each one of those embassies one after another, you would visit a whole lot of different countries very quickly because each one of those embassies is not U.S. territory officially. It, whatever embassy you walk into, you are literally in their country at that moment, which is why when you go overseas, you need to know where the embassy is because if you need the needs to be on American soil, you need to get into the embassy and you are in the middle of Brazil, but in the American embassy, you are in America. And they will decorate it as, as, as that country. They, they will have food from that country. Everything about that embassy will be from the country it represents because it is that country within that Territory. So they had that now still? Oh, yeah. Embassies are always that way. So if we want to really think about this, and I'm bringing this up just because we are representing God's glory. If we want to start thinking that we're truly ambassadors, we need to get our homes straightened out so that they are truly God's country in this world. When people enter our homes, they should be able to feel God's here. This is different. I'm feeling love. I'm feeling the peace. I'm feeling God in this place. When they come into the church, they should feel they've entered into God's presence, his house. There was a time that 
in America even, that the churches literally were like an embassy. When you walked into it, it was, you were in God's house. This was no longer, you were no longer in America. You had entered into God's house. And this is where the idea of churches being a sanctuary came from. It started in Europe with the, especially the Catholic Church you know, saying this is God's place. You're, you're not in France. You're not in Germany. You're not in England. You're not in Italy. You are in God's house. And the, and the military, nobody was supposed to come into that place because that would have been an invasion in, into, into a foreign territory. And that's where the sanctuary idea came. If I make it to the church, if I make it to the church, they, they'll protect me, mostly because you weren't allowed to, you were in a different country, you were following different laws. Are we living in such a way that when people come into that, they're finding themselves in a new location, no longer in this world? And this is so important for us as Christians. This is not our world. We've said this over and over. If you feel comfortable in this world, then something's wrong. We should always be ill at ease, not, not fearful, not dreading it, but this is not our home. People who travel know what it means to come home. They may be in five-star luxury hotels enjoying, you know, with all the amenities, but there's nothing like the pleasure of getting home. If you've ever taken a long trip that's taken you know, weeks to months, and you finally get back home. It's like, oh, I'm home. This is mine. This is, you know, this is where, this is my bed. This is my chair. My uh, dogs. My dogs. <laughs> but you get home and there's just, even if it's just the humblest of most places to live, it's still, this is home. And like I say, you might have been in five-star luxury accommodations, but you finally get home and there's this difference. We should be longing for the day when we get home, when God says, your time on earth is done. You're no longer an ambassador. You're being recalled. You're being recalled back to home. You know, you're, you're no longer having to, to be the ambassador. I'm going to bring you back to where you belong. This is the greatest thing. This is one of the reasons I like spending time in the church. I love spending time with God's people because it's more comfortable in that place. I hope our it's, recall comes back soon. Well, we're going to get our, we're going to get our calling and re recall very soon. No matter what, it's very soon because we're like grass. We, would, yeah. we, we come in a day and, we'd, and, we, and, we, and we die that quick. So regardless, we're going to get recalled soon. But, but we see God moving, and the people will see him moving, and they will glory in him. They will, they will see the way we live before him. One of the greatest things is when you live a godly life in front of people, you stay at peace in the middle of hardships. You, still, you stay following God when everything in your whole world seems to be going wrong, and people look at you. And they see that peace. They see that calmness. They see God, even though they may not know that it's God. And I used to love it in the restaurants in the middle of a hectic, busy time. And people would go, how can you stay so calm? How can you smile? How can you do this? And because I was manager, I couldn't just open up and tell people about God. But boy, could I let them know why once they, once they asked, and I did. Being able to lift God up. It's all because of God. His peace, his, his guidance, his, his comfort. We need to live that life that draws people to say, what's different? How can you be so nice to me when I, when I have been so mean to you? How can you not blow up when, when, when I'm trying to get you to get mad at me? How can you just stay peaceful and calm? It's all God. It's all God. And we lift him up. And sometimes that quiet witness is the best. Now, there are a lot of people, there's one famous person, I can't remember who it was, he said, you know, witness to everybody and sometimes use words. I don't necessarily fully agree with that. Yes, live in a way that witnesses as people all the time, but you do always have to use words. Okay, words are very important because faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. 
If we do not speak, they're really not going to understand the message because the world does not understand Christianity. They don't understand the God of love. They don't understand the God of mercy. They don't understand the God that does everything for us. And they may know that you're different. They may know that you're, you're, you're kind of strange and that you go to that church down the street, but they don't really know what is going on in your life, and we need to be able to share the gospel. Some of us share it more clumsily than others. Some people are very good at it. But God told us all, go into all the world teaching and making disciples. We are all called to do this. Some do it better than others. And I've shared with you, I've, I, I met an evangelist one time, and it was an amazing thing to watch this guy just talk to everybody. And he wasn't obnoxious. If I had talked to everybody, I would have sounded obnoxious. And, and he's telling the story to everybody in the restaurant that we were eating at. And he wasn't obnoxious. People were taking it in with no problem and enjoying, you know, not arguing with him or anything else. They were just being ministered to. And like I said, if I had told the story that many times, people would have found me obnoxious and, and been upset with me. But, you know, when you're with somebody who's a true evangelist, it's an amazing thing to watch them share. Most of us will never be that good with the gospel. Now, having said that, the more you share the gospel, the better you get at it. See, he may, this, the evangelist I went to may not have been all that good 20 years before. Okay? He may have fumbled and jumbled and offended people, but he had learned how to share. He would learned how to present himself. He had learned how to get this, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and all the other things that go with it. But the more we do something, the easier it gets. And we all really know that. We don't usually attach it to spiritual things. But isn't it true? How hard was it to learn to write when you first learned to write? You know, if you've ever taught anybody, you kind of know what it was like. And you might have forgotten how hard it was for you to learn how to write because we kind of forget about those things. But think about your kids when you first taught them to write, how clumsy it was and how it never, nothing made sense. You know, try to remind your kid how, much they, how hard it was for them to write originally now that they can just scribble out real quick what, what it is you want to, what they want to write. How about when you learn to play sports or learn to sew or learn to cook? Everything when you first start is hard to do. You're, you're worried about doing this. You're worried about that. You're, you, you don't understand how this works or how this gets put together. And then after years of doing it, it's like, now it was always been easy. I never remember a time when it was hard. <laughs> because we do forget, don't we? We forget the learning curve that goes into this. It's true even in the spiritual world. It's true when we open our mouth to give testimony and to evangelize. The more we do it, the easier it gets. When God challenges us to start doing things, the more we do it, the easier it gets. As we read through the scriptures, you know, how hard is it when you first start reading through the scriptures? Million and one reasons not to do it. Well, I got up late. I got to get this done. I got to get that done. This, that, and the other thing. And you just make a habit of doing it. And soon it becomes just, I've got to do it. And not because I have to do it, but... It's just what I do. I get up, I read my Bible, and do my day. I just pray, and I do my day. We sang the song this morning, How Sweet is the Hour of Prayer. You know, how many of us have prayed for an hour at a time? Some people do it quite frequently. Not many in this day and age do it that often. But you know, one thing about it is, and I'm not there yet, believe me, but the more you pray the easier it is to pray longer. Because I'm not at an hour yet, but I can pray longer now than I could in the past. And if you remember the, war, the, the movie War Room, the, the one lady said, you know, I used to have a hard time for in five minutes. She goes, now an hour has passed before I even, even know. So we need to be aware, the more we do something, the easier it gets. Just as in the physical world, the more we do something, the easier it gets. The same thing is true in the spiritual world. The more I study, the more I pray, the more I share the gospel, the more I reach out to people, the more I make the right decisions. 
the easier the right decision gets. But we want to keep this in mind as we go forward and, 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 and see where we're headed. And we're going to go ahead and close here. And let's go pray. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, we ask that you help us to learn to follow you, learn to be obedient. Help us. Help us to be a great witness to you and, an amb and ambassadors to this world. And we just thank you for all you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.